Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, a quick note from all of us here at the Hazard Ground. We sincerely hope that you are healthy and safe and secure. We know these are very trying times across the country right now as we're all dealing with this coronavirus and all of the sort of new norms that we're learning to live with every single day. But we sincerely hope that you are taking care of yourselves, your family, your loved ones, and everybody around you, and that you are doing everything in your power to stay safe and healthy and do the same for others. As usual, our reminders about growing our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube subscribers. Make sure you're with us on all the social media platforms to keep updated on the show and everything that's going on. And since we're all sort of self-quarantining here, it's a great opportunity to catch up on some of those previous episodes of The Hazard Ground. Guys, if you haven't had a chance, scroll through our entire guest list. There are so many amazing stories that you probably haven't heard yet. Some you may know, but even at that, the vantage point of each of our guests and their own personal touch and their own personal sort of viewpoint on each of these stories makes them incredibly unique. So take a look through all of our guests and find some previous episodes you haven't heard yet and go back and listen to them. It'll certainly be worth your while. You want to kill some more time while you're self-quarantining, take a look at our book list. You'll see all the books written by our guests on the hazard ground. These are some amazing writers and some amazing people who have truly crafted both personal stories, fiction, nonfiction stories that absolutely uh, help tell the story of who they are and what they are about. Finally, our promotion with Amazon is still ongoing. Go to hazardground.com. That's our website. Click on the Amazon banner at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we'll get that donated right back to some of the amazing charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Again, please stay safe, stay healthy, take care of your loved ones, and continue to be part of the Hazard Ground community. Now on to this week's guest. Joining us this week on the podcast is a very unique guest as he actually was in the NFL before he ever enlisted in the Marine Corps. That's right. He went to Arizona State and was drafted in the second round of the NFL draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And after spending part of four seasons playing in the NFL, he decided to enlist in the United States Marine Corps, where he spent nearly four years, including one deployment to Iraq, and he's now running for Congress in California. He is Jeremy Stott, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeremy, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great state of California is your next sort of mountain to climb. Uh, Before we get to how and why you're running for office, we always kind of start where guys got into the military, but I'm curious, I want to start back at your football career because that sort of led to the reasons why you joined the military, correct? Well, yeah, you know, the amazing thing about my story is a lot of people don't realize it or don't know is that I'm actually a third-generation veteran. My grandfather fought in the Navy in World War II. My father fought in um, Vietnam in the Army. He was actually – my father was actually a field medic. And I've always had that desire to to serve, but I never really had an opportunity due to sports. And so when the opportunity arose back in 2005 – 
uh, after I'd retired out of the NFL, I decided, you know what, I'm 29 years old. I'm in still somewhat decent shape. Um, you know what, I, I better do this now because if not now, then when? And so I decided to answer that calling and join the Marine Corps in 2005 when I was 29 years old. Well, I, let me fill in some background for everybody else. While you were a football player at Arizona State, you had a very notable and popular roommate. Well, absolutely. Well, my roommate was actually Kevin Tillman. Okay, Kevin that's Tillman right. was Kevin. Pat's brother. But yeah, Pat Tillman and I played at Arizona State. And you know, one thing that a lot of people don't realize about Pat is that Pat, you know, was not a Bible thumping Republican. Um, you know, he was more along the lines of a, a progressive atheist. But Pat and I had a great, you know, great friendship, a great kinship. We had a mutual respect for one another, even though I was a devout Christian and didn't always live the way of a devout Christian. But, you know, we would have our very in-depth conversations. Uh, but But we were able to have, you know... Really deep conversations, heated conversations, but at the end of the day, we still had mutual respect for one another and friendship. And then, uh, you know, during our time at ASU, um, going into the uh, 98 draft, you know, Pat was what they called a tweener. He was between positions, so he wasn't big enough to play inside linebacker. They said he wasn't fast enough to be a DB, and so he was kind of a tweener. And so, you know, even from a, an agent standpoint, he wasn't getting highly recruited um, as I was. I mean, I, I was a very high, uh, you know, recruited uh, player coming out of out of college. And my agent, Frank Bauer, you know, I used to remember telling Frank, going, hey, man, no one's talking to Pat, you know. No one's wanting to sign him, da-da-da-da, you know, would you go talk to him? He said, well, that's because he's a tweener. Well, long story short, Frank Bauer, who was my agent, actually went over and signed Pat. Um, to his, you know, to his, uh, underneath his, 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 uh, his wings, if you will. And, uh, so Pat and I actually had the same agent as well when we were drafted into the NFL. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of, it's kind of funny how our stories are intertwined, you know, because after nine 11, um, I wanted to leave. I had just gotten released from the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, that was the first time in my, my playing career that I've ever been released from a football team. You know, I was always highly sought after by the teams that I played on. And so that was kind of a, a blow to me. And so after getting released in 2001 from Seattle, 9-11 happened. And I completely decided then that I wanted to go do something more than just play a football game. I wanted to go be more. I didn't want to just be characterized as a football player. And so that's when I started looking into military service. And that's when Pat, uh, via Frank, called me and said, hey, Frank says, you know, you don't want to play anymore. You don't want to look at any contracts. You don't want to work out for any teams. What's going on? I said, man, we just got attacked by 11 you know, I want to go do something bigger than myself. I want to serve others besides myself. And, you know, I'm kind of tired of, you know, the political BS that goes on in the NFL. And for about two hours, Pat and I had this this conversation back and forth, heated at times. And I finally made a promise to him. I said, all right, Pat, you know what? I'll go back in the NFL. I'll get my final season. And then after that, I'm going to go do whatever the hell I want. And Pat said, that's great. Just do that for me. And, you know, um, everything's everything's hunky-dory, if you will. Uh, but then it was in 2002 when I signed with the Oakland Raiders that I had actually gone to Pat and Marie's wedding uh, there in Pleasanton. And uh, it was funny because then Frank came to me and said, hey, you know, Patty's got this uh, this contract on the table. He won't sign it. It's a three and a half, three point six million dollar contract with the Cardinals, but he won't sign it. Would you go over there and talk to him? 
And so this is at Pat and Marie's reception. And I walked to Pat, hey, man, congratulations. You know, awesome job. Marie looks awesome. You look horrible. Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of things like that. And then I said, well, hey, Frank's bugging me. He says you got this contract that you won't sign. He goes, I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, oh, I've got, you know, some other things going on. You know, let's not talk about that right now. We're at my wedding. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, no big deal. And so we cheers the Guinness and, you know, went on our way. And then, uh, you know, next thing I know, him and Marie go to Bora Bora. And then when he came back, you know, it broke all over the news that Pat and Kevin had joined the Army uh, to become Army Rangers. Incredible. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen your Wikipedia page, but um, and I only bring this up just because it's a moment of, of comedic levity, if you will. But uh, it was described at ASU, and I'm reading this directly, quote, Stoughton Tillman drank and partied hard during their college careers. Well, yeah, it was, a number two party. it was a number two party school in the nation. It would have, you know, we were just coming off a national championship, you know, debut about, if you will. We, we just played against Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. And so, you know, Arizona State was a, was a, was a school to be. And, you know, in the 90s, it was a great school. I mean, I mean, you had everything, beautiful weather, beautiful women. We yeah. were, had a winning program at the time. Yeah. We were doing some great things. And so Pat and I did a lot of things together, you know, I mean, I was there when, um, you know, different things had happened and, you know, we were basically kind of, you know, our consultants for one another, just trying to get through that time. And, you know, I'm so grateful that, that I had that opportunity to spend those, those two years with him. You know, when I first met him, I didn't think much of him. Um, you know, I remember we had our first team meeting. We came, you know, we're all in a team meeting and Pat came in and everybody in the room just started going crazy and they're like, you know, oh, oh, and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You know, and they're like, that's Pat Tillman. I said, okay, what's the big deal? <laughs> well, the big deal was that, you know, he usually has long, he had long hair, and for whatever reason, he decided to shave it all off. And so he shaved it all off, and, and that was the first that the team had seen him without any hair. And so I just remember he came in, and he just starts laughing, you know, sits down in his chair and kicks up his feet and throws up the bird, you know, basically, F you to everybody, you know, like, what's going on? But that was Pat, you know, and that's who he was. And you know, I, it's, you know, it's very, uh, I still talk to his brothers and, you know, I love talking to them because they're, they're a lot like him, you know, sure. they don't have the, yeah. the laugh and the, the same mannerisms and stuff like that, you know, and, and it's different because it's like, sometimes I don't know if I can talk as deep with them as I did with Pat, but you know, they're, they've been very, very, um, open to what I'm doing. You know, I said, Hey, when I run for this, I don't want to use Pat as a political ploy. I want to let people know that he's not a Bible thumping Republican, you know, and, and, uh, you know, talking with Kevin the other day, you know, he said the same thing. Kevin just said, you know, I'm just kind of a hippie progressive, you know, and I said, I appreciate it, you know, and we had a talk conversation, gave each other hugs and told him I loved him and, and went on our way. So, I mean, just great people. You know, great yeah, people. Absolutely. And again, I, I don't want to spend too much more time on Pat because this is your story, but uh, there, there's so many layers to Pat, right? I mean, I, I've done my fair share of reading about him in his life and I've talked to people who have known him. Uh, I can add you now to the list. But, you know, one of the things that made Pat Pat was his curiosity about other people, his genuine passion to learn what other people's likes and dislikes were. And uh, that kind of just molded who, not necessarily molded who he was, Jeremy, but in a sense, you know, he took in that information, processed it, and, and sort of just used it to whatever he needed it to you to do and discarded the rest of it, correct? Oh, absolutely. But he still had mutual respect. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. And, 
And the great thing about him is that, and I see that we need more of that in our world today, especially in politics, is like, hey, we can agree to disagree, but, you know, we don't have to sit there and try to destroy people because of, you know, one's belief or not a belief, but it's just, it's amazing. And that's kind of one of the reasons, you know, I started this, this uh, trail, if you will, down this campaign trail was that, you know, when I found out that, you know, the Congress, as it sits right now, less than 22% of Congress members are veterans. And I'm thinking, you know what, that's part of the problem with these people. You know, they've never learned to have to work with one another and actually gain, uh, you know, a, a goal. Whereas, you know, in team sports, football, Marine Corps, Army, you know, any of these times as team sports, you can have all kinds of people from different, you know, nationalities, cultures, if you will, uh, backgrounds and political ideologies, but yet they can still come together on one common goal. And that's one thing I don't see with this Congress and the way things are going. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've had people that have been sitting in these seats for 40 years. Agreed. You know, I've said it forever. My, they need term limits. Some of these people should have oh, been out absolutely. of office years ago. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because it's like, you know, love or hate Donald, uh, President Trump, you know, he's doing his best job that he knows how. Same thing with uh, President Obama when he was in there, you know, back and forth they went. But the thing about it is that it, it crushes me or not crushes me. It just really infuriates me is that you have these other politicians who have been in there 40, 50 years and they're sitting there pointing the finger at one man who's been in office for what, three and a half years. They're saying this is his all his fault. He's the reason for this. And it's like, wait a minute. You've been here for 40 years. In, what have you done? Yeah, you've been sitting there for 40 years stinking up the place. And now you want to blame you know, one man because you can't control what he's doing because he's not affiliated with either one of your parties. It's like, come on. No, I mean, listen, very well said. I, I've said it, I've said it for a long time. I agree 100 percent. I think the garden needs to be turned over uh, in politics. I think they need a hell of a lot more young people in there. And I would I would agree as somebody who uh, um, at some point has designs on running for office. We need more veterans because those are the people who really understand leadership. And that's the biggest void. Uh, and I, we'll get more into politics later, but that's the biggest void I see is that I don't see a lot of leaders. There may be a lot of politicians in there, but I don't see a lot of leaders. And to that end, I think when everybody goes to the poll, they should vote for leadership first because everything else after that is negotiable and, and can be navigated, right, if you have the proper leadership. Well, absolutely. And the big thing, too, is that, you know, the funny thing is they talk about this quid pro quo. Oh, that's all politics is. You know, yes. half these guys that are claimed to be leaders, you know, all they're doing is they're just finding little political pawns that they need. They put a bunch of money into these people. They get them elected. And then it's like, OK, remember when I got you elected? Now I need you to do this or I need you to do that. You know, it's like <laughs> that's the, that's the American politics. And and, you know, the further and further I get down this thing, I, I've I've come to the realize that, you know, men and women of honorable character and integrity have no place in American politics. And it's absolutely sad. All right, let's shift gears here for a minute because I do want to go back to the decision for you to enlist in the Marine Corps. I, I do think it's worth noting that, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I did this in my research, but one of the reasons that you initially didn't go, Pat had convinced you to stay for another year to go get your NFL pension, correct? Yes, that's correct. So what happens is, well, this, and, and via Frank, you know, you have to have four credited seasons. And in order to get a credited season, you have to have three uh, games within a season on the active roster. So you need to have three active games to get a credited season and you need four credited seasons, which I believe that's changed. I think now they change it down to three, but at that time it was four credited seasons. Okay. And so you went back for that final year, um, just to go get that, that pension because again, and for those that understand how the NFL works, you know, 
that's being part of that community after the fact is massive. It's health benefits. It's, you know, entrance in this, this special club, so to speak. But there's a lot that comes with that pension. That's super important. So 2020 hindsight vision, it was the right thing for you to do. Absolutely. You know, because I, I believe God has a control over everything and, and timing was everything. Um, the thing that's crazy about it is that when I signed back on in the NFL in 2002 with Oakland, um, you know, I actually switched sides. I actually went from the defensive side of the ball to the offensive side of the ball. And there were some political things that happened there. So I signed on with the uh, Oakland Raiders in 2002. Um, Go as go in or I sign as an offensive guard because Bill Callahan at the time was the offensive coordinator and the D line coach, and he said, "With your speed and your strength, you know you're going to be a pulling guard in my offensive scheme, and in two years you're going to be a Pro Bowler." And I'm like, "Okay, you know if I got the, this guy behind me, absolutely." Well, that just happened to be the season that, and it's the first time in NFL history, and it hasn't happened since that an NFL head coach got traded for $8 million in a first-round draft pick, and that was Gruden. So Gruden gets traded to Tampa. He goes to Tampa. Bill Callahan gets the nod to be the head coach. Well, at that minute, at that moment, I should say, things changed for me because all of a sudden I was taking reps. I was getting in there, and all of a sudden, as soon as Bill Callahan got the head coaching job, um, he essentially told me, quote, unquote, that uh, he had bigger fish to fry and that he was going to cut me in August. And so I'm like, wow, appreciate it. I already knew then that I was going to be an unrestricted free agent offensive guard with no playing experience. So I knew I was going to have to sit out that season. So I sat out the whole 2000, waiting, waiting, waiting for the phone call, never got it. So then 2003, I signed on with St. Louis Rams as a defensive tackle. And this is what's crazy because when I left Pittsburgh, the problem with what happened in Pittsburgh is it got political once again that Bill Callahan, or I'm sorry, Bill Cower and Tom Donahoe, Tom Donahoe was the general manager, Bill Cower was the head coach, they hated each other's guts. I was a Tom Donahoe draft pick. And so after my rookie season, I had gotten, I was, I was getting a whole bunch of playing time after my rookie season, all of a sudden Tom Donahoe, and this, of course, I don't know any of this is going on behind the scenes, but Tom Donahoe and Bill Cower go into Mr. Rooney's office and basically said, I can't work with him. I can't work with him. You know, something's got to change. And at that time, Mr. Rooney said, okay, well, it's easier to hire a GM than a head coach and fire Tom Donahoe. Well, at that point, uh, it was, you know, my, my playing days with the Steelers were done sure, because yeah. Bill Cowell wasn't going to have a Tom Donahoe draft pick, you know, playing out there, basically showing that Tom Donahoe or whatever knew what he was talking about. So essentially for two years, you know, I just had to grind it out with the Steelers before becoming a free agent. But unfortunately, the NFL is a very small brotherhood. And so when I told Bill Cowell that I didn't want him to resign me and that I didn't want to play in the Steelers anymore and sign out with the Seattle Seahawks, it just happened to be that the defensive coordinator, and I forget his name, who was at the uh, Steelers, his brother was the player personnel guy at the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> so, oh, my God. So, yeah, so essentially I'm walking into a, you know, a basically a, 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 you know, a viper's den, not realizing who's who in the zoo. And so I get to Seattle and basically um, wasn't going to have a shot there either because of being blackballed or blacklisted from the Steelers with the Seattle Seahawks. But what's crazy about it is that when I go back, so let's fast forward to 2003, 
my agent, Frank Bauer, is beside himself. He's like, how do you get a guy who's six foot six, you know, 300 pounds, running a 4940, who was the Pac-10 defensive lineman of the years, all this kind of garbage? How does he not get signed with a team? And so he goes back and talks with Bill Cower. And Bill Cower says, Jeremy's a great athlete. He's this, he's that. You know, he should be playing on the defensive side of the ball, you know, blah, 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 blah. He needs to be a defensive tackle. So then Frank starts pushing me to the St. Louis Rams as a defensive tackle. And lo and behold, they signed me in 2003. I make it through training camp. Everything's going really well. And they decided, the Rams decided to draft the first round uh, pick and Jimmy, I forget his last name, but he was a first rounder. He was a defensive tackle. So they put all this money in a first round draft pick. Well, the writing was on the wall. You know, they're not going to keep me on board because of what I was making, my salary at the time. And so I got released in 2003, and then about two months into the season, the St. Louis Rams are so banged up on defense that they brought me back in. I got my four games and basically called it a career. All right. And so then uh, 2006 rolls around, and uh, you join the Marine Corps. Now, I got to ask, you played college football, you played NFL, you've played a lot of hot summer days, two days in the heat. What's harder, football training camp or Marine boot camp? You know, they're, they're, those are two different ball. I mean, those are basically two different, you know, um, schemes, if you will. Um, the NFL was different as far as the mindset. That's something I had been conditioned to do. The Marine Corps was mentally more um, exhausting on the fact that, you know, here I'm 29 years old and I'm having to deal with 18, 19-year-old kids who some of them have never had to do anything other than just, you know, pass their classes in high school and they're dealing with, you know, Issues that I was kind of like, wow, that's not really an issue when you look at the big, you know, uh, scheme of things and you know, in life, you know, they're pro- having problems with their girlfriends or having problems with their parents or whatever they might be. But the hardest part was going from a sprint mindset in the NFL to a long distance marathon journey, if you will, in boot camp where it was just like it just continued to go where you know, boot, or, uh, um, you know, training camp in the NFL is well, when at my time it was five or six weeks, whereas boot camp was 13 weeks. You know, instead of running 110 yard, you know, striders, you're running a three and a half, four mile, you know, uh, jog. So it was a little bit different. So mentally, it was more taxing, not so much physically in the Marine Corps uh, over the NFL. And then, of course, being in the NFL, you know, having the physical aspect as recovering from you know, football games and having to do that for 16, 17, 21 weeks or however long the season would be uh, was a little bit different as well. All right. After you graduate Marine boot camp, where do you go? Uh, I actually go to, I went to Camp Pendleton for my, um, my infantry school School of infantry infantry training. Okay. Correct. Um, And then, but that was, you know, that was another thing is that being in boot camp, you know, was tough because, you know, within two or three days, the word was out, of my, my background, and of course, my experience in boot camp changed uh, as soon as I got into my my platoon in boot camp. Everything changed because all of a sudden, people that normally don't visit platoons were visiting the platoon and bringing unwanted attention to myself. And of course, you know, being on the parade deck or marching through um, MCRD, you know, of course, I'd have other drill instructors going hood hood hike, hood hood hike, or they'd be, they'd grab me out of class. Or as I'm running to the head, they'd grab me out of class and say, hey, you know, you stupid fuck, what are you doing here? You know, you're going to give up your, you know, the NFL. You want to die like your friend Pat Tillman? What's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, 
Okay. You know, I'm like, this is not why I'm here guys, but you know, appreciate it. But of course I couldn't say that. And so I just stood there and took it. But, um, like I said, it was, it was a little bit different experience for me on the basis of the life experiences I had before going into the, into boot camp. Okay. So when you get to your unit first, um, What's it like for you? Is it a culture shock? And, and you know, it's funny because people make so many parallels between football and the military. Uh, when you first get to your unit, do you see those parallels? Do you feel like you're there or are they over-exaggerated? Oh, they're extremely over-exaggerated. The thing about it is I get to my unit and they had just returned from Afghanistan. They had lost a few guys, a few Marines in country. And, of course, the first thing that happens is I get with my, my unit, my platoon, and uh, we have a company meeting and the battalion commander pulls me up, you know, in front of whatever it was, 300 Marines, and basically says, you know, this guy here is a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. He is not an NFL superstar, blah, 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 and he's not to be treated differently. It's like, oh, my God, you just – you're treating me differently. If you hadn't said anything, nobody would know who I am. Right. But, yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was pretty tough. You know, of course, they knew who I was before I got to, got to the unit. And, of course, they were trying to make an example out of me, which I wasn't trying to be made an example. I just wanted to serve. I wanted to be the best Marine I could be. But, unfortunately, um, you know, I was uh, essentially overexposed due to my prior uh, achievements in life. And so it was a little bit different. Let me ask you, and, again, I'm sorry to return to the to Pat Tillman subject, but, you know, Pat had already been killed by the time that you had signed up. So everybody was aware that, you know, football players were signing up for the Marine Corps and everything else. And did anybody try to throw Pat's name around at you? Oh, absolutely. You know, they would did throw it bother things you? around. It did because, you know, it wasn't why I was there. You know, I was trying to, you know, blaze my own trail and do my own thing. But, you know, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but our our lives are intertwined and it's going to be that way for the rest of my life. You know, no matter what I do, the Pat Tillman is going to be brought up, which is great. You know, I mean, I want his legacy to live, but I have to tell people and it's hard for me because I don't want to shut people down, but you know, this campaign, and I've said this before, you know, isn't about Pat Tillman. It's about me and what I'm trying to do with my, the rest of my life. And, um, you know, it is really tough because, uh, it's going to be one of those things that's going to be brought up over and over and over as long as I live. Okay, so you get to your first deployment when, and it's in Iraq, correct? Correct. We, I, had, I only had one deployment. I went to, uh, I was deployed to Haditha, Iraq in 2007. And so basically once we left for, you know, 29 Palms for uh, everything that we did, it was about a nine-month deployment, uh, roughly about seven months in Haditha, Iraq in 2007. So, um, you know, that was quite an experience as well, going into that country and seeing the different culture and how things are run in that country. Um, overall, I was, um, you know, exposed to a lot of different things. And I realized that, you know, even people who have different ideologies and beliefs, you know, a laugh is the same in any language and that they're just people and they're trying to live and they're trying to do the best they can. And they're, um, you know, essentially, um, just want to live. But, um, you know, it was, it was very eye-opening to see that the stark contrast between what the American news was saying and what was actually going on. And that's why a lot of times when I see news stories, I have to read, you know, three or four different news stories on the same subject to really find where the truth is. And for those who don't know, um, 
Haditha is uh, probably about a three-hour drive. It's maybe about 250 miles from Baghdad, northwest of Baghdad, um, you know, towards western Iraq. So uh, I'll pass Ramadi for those who are not, uh, you know, familiar with the geography. That said, I mean, what's your day-to-day life like on your deployment? Like, how much contact are you in? Uh, are you just doing patrols? Give me kind of the background of that. Yeah, the biggest thing is we had a Mustang uh, captain. I mean, he was he was all about being out there on patrol. He didn't want us sitting on the fob and, and messing around or doing anything like that. You know, he didn't want the internet or phones on the fob. Um, that's how dedicated he was to the cause because he wanted to bring everybody home. But essentially, we were on uh, four hour on, four hour off uh, travel. Uh, a patrol schedule and we would rotate through as a machine gunner you know as having a machine gunner platoon uh we would have our weapons platoon we would have basically we rotate through we would go four hours on as a foot patrol four hours on as a mounted patrol and then we'd go four hours on as qrf um but the thing that's crazy about it is that that schedule never worked out that way <laughs> So right. <laughs> you, you might you might go out for a four hour foot patrol, then you find we would find an IED. Well, then we're sitting on that IED, you know, uh, set up security for you know ten or twelve hours, waiting for EOD to come in and uh, disband that that IED. So our patrol schedule was basically out as much as possible um, during that time. We we found uh, I don't know probably a half dozen or more IEDs. We hit one IED during what we call desert denial. Um, essentially, one of our uh, vehicles, uh, VC, uh, decided to go outside the uh, seven-ton tracks and hit a pressure plate IAD, which essentially blew the I or that blew the uh, Humvee in half. Luckily, nobody was killed. One guy lost a finger and took some shrapnel to his butt, and then John Banta, you know, busted his face up when he hit the hit his face on the uh, the butt of his. Uh, 240 uh, but other than that yeah he had two plates and seven pins stuck in his face oh, man. but other than that we were actually the only at that time we were the first infantry battalion to bring everybody home minus a finger wow um so in your experience there do you feel like almost you were sold short i know it sounds crazy to say but like you signed up for this love of country and desire to go fight and go get bad guys and nothing really happens to you. Were you disappointed by that? I was, you know, because I was expecting something else, but you know, that's life. Um, you know, and unfortunately in the media and, and, you know, Hollywood, they're trying to sell something more than what it really is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I felt there was a letdown, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to go here, you know, I'm going to go here and, and, uh, you know, as soon as we get off the bird, you know, we're going to be in contact because that's what it seems like on the news every day. There's contact left and right, you know, and uh, when you take when I took a step back and looked at the overall uh, scenery, if you will, I realized that, you know, the war in Iraq is not even comparable to the war in Vietnam or in World War Two. You know, some of the things that our veterans saw before us in Iraq and Afghanistan were completely uh, different parallels, if you will, as far as the grotesque stuff that happened. Um, but I was just really let down. I felt let down because I wanted to believe so hard in what we were doing and what was going to change that now that I look back, I think, man, nothing's really changed in that country. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's, they're still going to do what they want to do and, and being, you know, young and dumb and thinking that we could change the world. I mean, I look back and I go, man, these people have been killing each other since the dawn of man. Yep. 
And we think that we're going to go in there and, and here's America and we're going to give you our democracy and our constitution and you're just going to change overnight. And unfortunately, that's probably never going to happen. Well, and look, and people never understood this from the beginning. And when Iraq broke out and even Afghanistan, it doesn't even matter either one. You're not going to change 2000 years of thinking in 18 months or three years or five years. It's just you're working on such a steep slope that it's, it's never going to get there to that end. Also, the thing that separates America from everybody else is our desire to be unified, or at least the beginning of our country, their desire to be unified, their desire to, to walk away from something. You can even see it now. I mean, you know, with current events and everything else. And, you know, as we sit here in the middle of January recording this, things that are going on in Iran, you have people protesting in the streets, but not everybody feels like, you know, the people protesting are right. What built our country was this unifying belief that we deserved freedom from England. And from there, it all went forward. So until you can find that unifying belief in the Middle East, which due to tribalism and again, hundreds of years of, of thought and everything else, it's nearly impossible to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at what time is it going to change? I mean, for me as a believer, I mean, I know what I think is going to change it, but, you know, change in the heart of man to believe in one ideology, if you will, is the only way it's going to happen because at the end of the day, everybody's going to have their opinion. Everybody's going to say what they want to say. And at the end of the day, who's right? You know, what what guidelines are we basing everything? I was reading some stuff the other day about, you know, God and Allah and how, you know, Islam and Christianity is the same thing. It's like, whoa, the same God. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, that's 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 okay. You, know, but, you just make me laugh because I remember having this conversation with my interpreter in Iraq and we, we got along really well. We were able to joke with each other. And, and again, all this is in jest. Um, and, you know, every time I would have a meeting with my Iraqis, he would tell me, you know, they would say, inshallah, you know, obviously, which means if God wills it. And he right. would look at me, and he, one day he said that to me, and I said to him, which God are you talking about, your God or my God? And he looked at me and said, sir, there's only one God. I said, no, 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 no. There's your God and there's my God. I know that for a fact. And I was breaking his stones the whole time, but I, when you said it, it just made me laugh that we argued for 10 minutes. I was like, nope, there's your God and my God. Trust me, they're different. Oh, yeah, you know, I had the same, I mean, I have one of the same stories. I was sitting there on the streets of Aditha, you know, I'm walking down, we had some IPs, you know, Iraqi police officers with us, and we're sitting there talking, and literally, I mean, I wish there was a picture of it, but I've got my M16 and his AK-47, we're muzzle to muzzle, you know, we're just, we're just slung down, and they're muzzle to muzzle, and we're just talking outside of this Iraqi's house, we had a, we were doing some security for, you know, for the mayor or something, and we start rapping about it, we start talking about you know, ideologies. And basically what he said, the same thing, he came down to, well, you know, we, Allah and God are the same. The only difference is that we don't believe that Jesus Christ is a savior, man. We believe he was a prophet and we believe Muhammad, you know, was our guy. And it's like, okay, great. You know, okay. So we agreed to disagree. No shots were fired. We agreed to disagree. You know, I, I have to be honest, when I started walking away, I'm like, is this son of a bitch going to shoot me in the back? <laughs> you know, like, but it didn't happen. But once again, we have to be real and have these conversations. And that's the one thing that I, I see, you know, that's really wrong with our society today is that, you know, people are so offended by everything that we can't even have conversation, constructive conversations with anybody without somebody getting upset and being offended, even if the, tr if the facts and the truth of the matter are on the table. So that deployment ends, you get back home. Uh, what's next for you as far as the Marines are concerned? 
But no, I come back, we get back, and you know, of course, we get out, you know, by you know, any by any marine standards, when you get back from deployment, what do you do? You go out and you party a bunch and you you know, you're thankful God that you're back in country and, and essentially I was out with uh, some of my Marines and we're out having a good time and I wind up going into atrial fibrillation. Um, I wake up, we're getting ready, we're doing our workup for Afghanistan. Um, we're at the shot X, basically getting ready to get all our shots for Afghanistan. And we're sitting in line all of a sudden, I feel like crap. I'm like sick, got a stomach bug. So I kind of get out of, get out of line, throw up. And next thing you know, I check my pulse. I'm like, what the heck? I'm dizzy. My pulse is out of control. I'm like, Corman, you know, Corman, Corman up. And he checks my pulse. He's like, holy crap, dude, you're like 190 over something. I'm like what? I'm like, yeah, your pulse is out. Like, Come on. Boom. So they throw me down, you know, in the, uh, the not the mess hall but the uh one of the doctor the appointment rooms there and they start hooking me up to ekg they're throwing bare aspirin down my throat i'm like what the hell is going on they're like we think you're having a heart attack i'm like heart attack are you out of your mind i'm you know 32 years old what are you talking about and so long story short i went to atrial fibrillation they had the dc convert my heart um, basically stop it to get it to beat in a correct rhythm and then from there um they essentially did a full workup on me. It took whatever it was, a year, and then I got dis- a discharge. Or it's kind of right now, it's it's in between. I'm not for sure exactly what it was. Was it a medical discharge or was it medically retired? They're still finding it out in the VA here 12 years later or whatever it is. Um, but, uh, yeah, so essentially that's what it came down to. And they're like, well, you know, of course the Navy doctors are like, oh, you're fine. You know, go back. You're going to go to Afghanistan if and when. You know, you go in the AFib again, just make sure you get to the ER. And I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, first off, I'm going There's to not Afghanistan. not an ER in Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm going to Afghanistan. And I said, if this is an issue, the problem I have is I'm not trying to be some badass. I said, because if I go down at 6'6", 270 pounds, you know, and I'm on the side of a mountain, I don't want to put 14 other Marines' lives in danger because my fat ass goes down. I said, we need to figure out what's wrong with this. We need to get it fixed. And, of course, you know, they went through and decided, okay, well, you know what? You're too banged up to be a Marine anymore and basically, you know, kicked me out the door. Do you think football had anything to do with that issue? Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure football and, you know, carrying a 125-pound rucksack up and down mountains, jumping over fences and stuff of that nature has something to do with it as well. Uh, but actually, you know, the biggest thing was – being in Iraq, you know, sitting on that damn battle saddle, that little leather strap and a gun turret, you know, going through the desert at 75 miles an hour, hitting some big ass wallies. That's what really hurt. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that jacked my back up for sure. Um, you know, cause there's no, there's no give in that seat, but um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad I had the experience. I'm glad it's over with. I got out in 2009. I moved back home to uh, my hometown of Bakersfield, California. I married my wife, Janelle, and we have two amazing young boys. And, uh, you know, I decided that I wanted to continue to serve. I couldn't serve on the front lines anymore, but I wanted to continue to serve. And so that's when I started my own foundation, the Jeremy Stott Foundation. And what I would do is go out and help uh, troubled youth and veterans essentially find their way, find trades. You know, I, I'm a big believer in the trade skills. Uh, I grew up laying concrete, digging ditches, running electrical, you know, doing landscape uh, design and stuff of this nature, carpentry. And uh, I saw a huge need um, for that in our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, um, after getting out and doing some reading on, you know, a huge epidemic that continues to plague our veteran community uh, is the epidemic of, of veteran suicide, suicide yeah. 
and most people don't realize, and I've been preaching this for almost 10 years now, is that you know we've lost more veterans to suicide than we have in all the conflicts since World War II. And so I decided, you know, something needs to be done about this. And the funny thing about it was back in 2012, it was a camp, it was a uh, presidential year, I believe. And I was so annoyed with how much money was being spent on these campaigns. I mean, just spending, I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do a national campaign to bring awareness to veteran suicide. And I'm going to do it for as little amount of money as possible. And so that's when I decided to ride a bicycle 3,468 miles across the country, raise an awareness about veteran suicide. And so I rode from the Wall of Valor in Bakersfield, California, and basically zigzagged my way across the southern part of the United States, all the way to the Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. Wow. Yeah, and along the way, hit every single war memorial, military installation, veteran home, VA hospital, all the way across the country to see exactly the differences in you know the hospitals and how veterans were treated and uh it took me about 100 days i'm glad i had the opportunity to see it now this is on a like a bicycle bicycle yeah not a hog or a motorcycle uh, okay, well, you said a bike I, I just wanted to, for clarity's sake yeah i mean i thought you meant bicycle but you know people have taken motorcycles long ways that's insanity bro well, you know, the thing about it is I believe that our veterans are worth it. And, yes. and you know, my, my thing is this, you know, even when I was in the NFL and even in the military, I've seen that we're, we do a horrible job of taking care of those who have taken care of us. You know, one thing I couldn't stand in the NFL is that, you know, the players that had come before us weren't getting the benefits that the players are getting today. And it really annoyed me. I said, you know, we're not taking care of the guys that got us to the dance floor. And it's the same thing with – when I say guys, it's guys and girls. Uh, but uh, the thing about it is, is that I see the same thing now with our veterans. You know, my father's been out of Vietnam for 50 years. He's been a part of the VA system for 12, and he's still fighting to get a better, a bigger, or a better rating than 10%. Yeah, I mean, I, I've told this story hundreds of times. It's just, you know, I, I'm on VA disability – I can go back for more. I just don't feel like going through the process. It's too much of a pain in the ass. Like I, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't have the strength to go through it again. It, it, whatever it is, what it is, I'll deal with it after the fact. But you know, I, I don't. Unless there was an easier process, until I see an easier process, I'm not going to climb that mountain again. I did it once. Well, and this is the problem. This is one of the reasons I'm running. Is like you know what? I truly believe. And I'm sick and tired of our, our, these politicians being treated like celebrities. They are servants of the people. Why are they getting better treatment than our veterans? You know, and I really believe this. If we really want to change the system and the leadership, we need to stop treating these politicians like celebrities. I believe that the politicians should get their health care through the VA system. You know, they want socialized of Bernie and AOC and these other people out there that want socialized health care. Well, hey, we got it, baby. It's called the VA system. You know what? Drop your insurance coverage. Come to the VA system. Because I can guarantee you if old Bernie had had to go through the VA system for that little heart attack he had a couple months back, he wouldn't be with us today. Amen. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> and the other thing, too, is, you know what? They should get their freaking retirement through Social Security. You know, I mean, why are they getting this high-end, you know, retirement? Why don't they get the retirement through Social Security? I also believe that their war chest, you know, the quote-unquote war chest, all the monies that they raise, uh, that they sit around and have in the little bank account, that money should be donated back to Social Security as well. 
I mean, why you, do they get to walk away with it? You're not going to get an argument from me. I mean, that's, you know, this is uh, I, obviously divulging some personal and political opinions. Here. I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying on its premise, um, you know, but it's one of those things where there certainly is a civil military divide, right? I mean, it, there is a an imbalance in the relationship between how our military is treated, what they do, what they're asked to do, uh, and what their benefits are on the other side. You know, I mean, I, I think that that part is clear. So let me ask you, you mentioned earlier that you got cut from a football team when the Steelers let you go. It was the first time you'd ever been cut. And then you'd also been discharged from the Marine Corps for medical reasons. Was either one of those tougher than the other when you put the two side by side? Was any more either one more deflating to your ego that all of a sudden? And I ask for the Marines because all of a sudden this this massive football player, you know, his bodies broke down and betrayed him, and, and he couldn't do it anymore. Like compare the two. You know, to me, they're kind of one of the same when it comes down to pride. Um, you know, because I don't go into anything just you know trying to do it half ass. And for me, you know, I gave everything I had in the NFL and it was just like, okay, you're, you know, you, you don't want me anymore because you and this other guy have a problem or, um, the numbers don't work out. So, um, we're not going to keep you, you know, it's kind of like, okay, but can you deny that I'm, I'm a better player than, well, we can't deny that you're a better player than this, but because your salary is at whatever it is, 250,000 and his salary is at 185. We're going to go ahead and keep him because of numbers. Sure. Okay. And then, you know, in the Marine Corps, it was a little bit different because for me, you know, I was 33 years old, which at that time, you know, that's kind of old by Marine terms. Yeah. In the Marine Corps (laughs) standard, that's you're, you're an old man. You're ancient. You know, you should be some, you know, E8 or E9. Well, at that point, most Marines who enlisted have been doing it for 15 years. Absolutely. So I was, you know, behind the eight ball on that as well. I mean, I would love to have gone, but then, you know, when I have to look at it realistically and say, okay, you know, you're a, you're an E4, you just got non-wrecked for E5 because the first sergeant didn't like you because he said you were a fat body because you weren't in regs. It was like, okay, first sergeant, um, I haven't been in regs since I got in the Marine Corps. See, I had to sign three waivers, an age waiver, a height waiver, and a weight waiver. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult to hear that being said. And I just finally said, you know, well, I'm shit. I'm 33 years old. You know, I've got to kind of look at my life after the NFL and um, the Marine Corps. Cause essentially I've had to start my life over about four different times. You know, I've been essentially bankrupt probably three or four times in my life. And I've had to figure out how to, to, you know, circumnavigate all the different obstacles in life. So coming out of the NFL, because there was a time period, there's about two years between 2000, and 2003, where I didn't get a paycheck, and I didn't make. I made very little money in the NFL mm-hmm. for two years because of the fact that I wasn't on the team. Because the only time you get paid in the NFL is if you're on the active roster. So I could assign right. a 10 million dollar deal, but if I'm not on the active roster, I don't get paid that money. And so for two years, I didn't get a paycheck, but yet I had, you know, NFL bills that I had to be paid. And so essentially my last year in the NFL in 2003, I mean, I was essentially, you know, almost bankrupt because of all the money. I lost money in the, in the stock market. I lost money, um, you know, just being an NFL football player, um, going out and party and doing what I did. Um, 
But so I had to restart over. Same thing in the Marine Corps. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I remember signing up. I was getting ready to get married. And uh, coming out of the Marine Corps, I wanted to buy a house, you know, because I was going to get married. But I couldn't qualify for a VA loan because I didn't have a job. And I'm like, wait a minute, I just spent four years in the Marine Corps. And they're like, well, sorry, if you don't have the credit um, and the income, we can't give you a loan. And so I was like, wow. You know, so I had to learn, you know, to kind of navigate those obstacles to become successful again. And, uh it's really tough, especially for a lot of young Marines that are coming out thinking, man, I just put my life on the line for this country. Where's my free house? Where is my car? Where is, you know, I'm entitled to these things, but unfortunately, we're not. And so that's what's really difficult for me when I see a lot of these different organizations that are giving houses away to, you know, veterans who are already 100% disabled and not taking care of the other ones because their service is somewhat um, less desirable because, you know, they didn't get blown up or they're not missing a limb or something of this nature, you know? So it was really difficult to overcome those obstacles as well, because it's like, wow, okay, well, I just, I got to figure this out on my own again. And so I had to deal with that on both levels in the NFL and in the Marine Corps. So in all this time, uh, obviously you're, you're kind of uh, figuring out what's next in life and, uh, it's hard to cover a 10-year period between 2009 and 2019 when you make your announcement that you're going to run for Congress in California. But kind of give me the background of the whole thing. I know you've touched on a little bit that you were kind of sick and tired of the establishment and seeing where it is. But, uh, you know, what were you doing in the meantime? Were you just working a regular job? And, and how do you get to the point where you're at where you're saying, look, I'm going to go all in and run for Congress? Well, essentially what's happened is after my bicycle ride in 2012, um, my, my wife and I decided to have a family, and so um, I really decided that I was going to prioritize my family over, uh, you know, the needs of others because I was so overwhelmed. I mean, if you want to be overwhelmed, if you want to have, if you want to make sure that you're not bored at any time, you know what? Start serving your community. I mean, there is so much need in the community, whether it's with veterans, homelessness, with kids, with you know, whatever it is. And so through the foundation that I ran for almost two and a half years, I was just overwhelmed. I was tired. Uh, I was on the road six days out of the week. And I just basically said, you know what? I can't lose my family trying to save the world. And so I got to make a choice. And so what I decided to do was basically back out of the public uh, light, limelight, if you will, um, work on, you know, focus on my family. I went back to school and since 2012, I believe it is, or 2013, I've earned a master's degree in educational leadership. I've earned an EDS degree in educational leadership, and I'm a dissertation away from my doctoral degree uh, in educational leadership. And I decided that about six years ago that I wanted to do more in the community as far as teaching trade skills. I wanted to start my own welding academy. But as I went through the process to start this academy, I wound up taking a job at Bakersfield Junior College teaching welding um, to essentially the exact same crowd that I wanted to teach through my foundation. But now I don't have to worry about raising, you know, $300,000 a year to keep the found, to keep the foundation running. So I essentially stepped back from the president of my foundation and just put that on hiatus. And I've been teaching welding for the last six years and absolutely love it. But I just felt like, you know what, there's something I got, I need to do more. There's, I need to do more. I'm sick and tired of seeing our veterans treated this way. I'm tired of seeing them being treated like political pawn only for politicians when they want a vote. You know what I mean? It's like, wow. You know, so essentially, you know, going into this, this uh, political run, it's been very eye-opening to see how deceptive and to see how self-righteous 
you know, a lot of you have to be in order to be a congressman. Yeah. <laughs> or any politician for that matter. I think that uh, you know, the game that is politics is something that is part of just the constructs of the way it's played. I mean, similar to the NFL, right? I mean, you can have a style of play, but in reality, the rules dictate how you play. And, and I think there are certain things in Congress or certain, certain things in politics that dictate how you play. It's about relationships. It's about getting to know people, letting, getting them to know you, about being likable, all those things, shaking hands. And, you know, that's all part of the game of Congress. But where I, I think that we lack is more in the integrity and the decision-making, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is what reeks. When I'm around political people and I talk to them and everything else, and I, I see the game from the outside looking in, and you could just tell that there is a certain amount of stench that doesn't mesh with the values that we learn in the military. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things I actually just did uh, just this past week, about a week and a half ago, you know, I found out through my campaign, it was only by accident, but we, you know, we have all the, the thing about this campaign and it's all about money, 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 money is, is essentially equates to bullets. Um, you know, if you don't have enough money, you can't go out there and, and, and get the uh, name recognition. You can't win the votes that you need. You can't build a relationship because once it, what, what it comes down to at the end of the day, it's all about name recognition. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that I found out with my campaign is that um, they had, you know, uh, launched this email solicitation campaign and uh, i thought wow this is pretty cool so you know you've got 14 million emails you know in this and this data comes from just basically our cell phones and being online i mean people can collect your i mean they can get anything they want from you online these days i mean it's scary how much information is just being thrown around out there about ourselves and uh essentially you know they use this database and uh I thought this is really cool. Okay, they're going to blast this out. This email blast is going to go out to all these people, and these people are going to click on this link and they're going to donate to my campaign. Wow, this is pretty cool. Well, come to find out, and I didn't authorize it, but eighty percent of what was being donated online was going to a third-party marketing company. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Wait a minute!" I said, "There needs to be a disclaimer on this email." telling people that 80% of their money isn't going to the actual candidate. It's actually going to this third-party marketing company. I have a problem with that. And they said, well, this is what you do. We're essentially buying their information. Now we have their information. We're going to resolicit them later and ask them for more money. And I go, what? I go, no, 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 no. That's absolutely wrong. I said, that's deceptive and that's misleading. I said, that's not what we're going to do. Well, that's just the way the game is played, ha, ha, ha. And I said, wait a minute, are you laughing at me? Why is it so funny? You know, why are you laughing? I said, this is wrong. This is deceptive. And so long story short, I wind up firing all my consultants because I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'd rather lose this race having my honor and integrity intact than winning it being deceptive to those who are trying to support me. Because if, if you were to give $1,000 to my campaign via this email and you found out that $800 of that went to some third-party marketing company, I mean, you'd be a little bit upset. Sure. You know, and they, oh, well, you know. And I said, I said that, that's not what we're going to do. But there were some other things that happened. But these consultants, all they care about is money. And so they go, well, you know what? Yeah, so what? Just go raise more money. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not going to go raise more money. This is not being a good steward of people's money. I said, I don't agree with this. And so I made the decision. No, nope, I'm firing you all. And I fired them all, you know, basically 50 days from the March 3rd election. Wow. You know, because that's me. I'm a man of integrity. And I'm not going to play this quote-unquote political game by deceiving the people who are supporting me the most and so if i don't raise the million dollars that i need so be it 
you know, if I can win this thing with a hundred grand, then so be it. But I'm not going to sit there and play this political game and I'm going to let the world know. Do not give money to email solicitation campaigns, especially if there's no disclaimer telling you where that money goes. I mean, maybe that's one of the first things I'm going to pass when I get in there. <laughs> right. You know what? All money should be disclosed where it's going because, I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And so, you know, but that's the game. These politicians, you know, and they see it as we'll do anything by any means possible to win. Even if I have to lie to the people who are supporting me, and I think there's something wrong with that. Wow. All right. So where is your campaign right now? Um, and again, for those who don't know, you're running for this seat in the 8th Congressional District. The guy who was there before you is retiring, so it's a open race. I assume you kind of enjoy the fact that it's an open race kind of deal, right? Well, you know, the biggest thing, the whole reason I got into this was because of what Duncan Hunter did in the fifty. Duncan right. Hunter, for those of you who don't know, is a Marine who basically is going to jail for, what, $300,000 worth of misappropriation of campaign funds, and he's got six or seven mistresses or whatever. But anyways, you know, as a Marine, I'm going, gosh, dang it, you had it. Basically, you had the life, and you destroyed it, and you're putting, a, you know, a, a, a bad, you know, basically a bad target on, on any other Marine who wants to run for Congress because of what you've done. And so I wanted to basically kind of bail him out and try to save face with the community when it comes to politics. So people right now are sick and tired of politics. They're sick and tired of politicians. They're sick and tired of the pettiness. They want real, they want real people in office who are actually going to represent their best interests. But as far as my campaign is right now, we're basically restarting. We're kicking it off again. We're getting ready to do a huge online uh, fundraising uh, campaign so that 100% of those funds go directly to the campaign so that I can actually purchase the things that I need to purchase in order to win this thing. Um, you know, as far as signs, billboards, and stuff of this nature, that's what it's all about is getting the name recognition out there. And so I've actually got a great group of individuals who have jumped on board here that are going to really help me to get the name recognition out there. It's an open seat. Paul Cook, who is the incumbent, uh, is a retired Marine Corps colonel. He's actually a Purple Heart recipient as well. He actually wanted to, um, you know, pass his seat on to another veteran because he knows that the percentage of veterans in Congress is extremely low. Right. But I'm an anti-establishment guy. You know, I, I, I'm, 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 I hate pipeline politicians. I actually despise politicians in general. But the only way to change the system is to get in there and actually, you know, essentially shame them to realize that they're not, you know, putting the best interests of the people first. They're putting themselves first. It's amazing to me how, you know, when it comes to benefits or a raise or anything like that, you know, they're all on board with each other. Oh, yeah. But when it comes to like veteran issues or immigration, they'll sit there and have this dramatic fight for as long as it takes and then ask for reelection so they can continue the fight. You know, to me, sometimes I don't even feel like they want to, to solve the problems. They want to just keep, you know, uh, letting it just continue to, to, to uh, uh, procrastinate on the issue so that they can sit there and fight in that same seat and just use that you know, that carrot out in front of their constituents saying, oh, they're going to keep fighting for me. They're going to keep fighting for me. But nothing ever gets done. But essentially, like I said, we're basically in the biggest fight uh, in this political campaign that we can be in. Uh, we're really behind the eight ball and just trying to get the uh, the awareness out there. And if I don't win, it's not a big deal because I know it's going to open up other opportunities for me down the road. Who knows? President Trump might see what's happening. If I don't win the primaries and get into the jungle election, into the general, he might say, you know what? I like this guy. I'm going to make him the head of the VA. I mean, who knows? I don't know. 
But unless we put ourselves out there and try to, you know, change the system, we're never know we're never going to know what kind of opportunities are available to us unless we actually get out there and expose ourselves to uh, what could potentially be, you know, a great opportunity. You said ahead of the VA, uh, many have tried, more have failed in fixing the VA, uh, and, and to include. President Trump. And again, you know, political affiliations aside, that was one of the things he ran on that he was going to fix the VA. And to this day, three and a half years later, we're still dealing with the same VA. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, and I'm not necessarily blaming the president for not fixing it. But my point simply is to say, when you say you want that job, I'll play the political game with you. Why can you do it different than everybody else? Well, the biggest thing I see right now is that it's not the people within the VA system. The VA system right now is so impacted by the needs of our veterans, the VA doesn't have the resources. You know, my thing is, is that we have to get the resources to the individuals that need it. I mean, I've sat with the doctors. I've sat with the RNs. I've sat with the individuals and talked to them saying, hey, what do you guys need? I've actually talked to these people. And some of these people are literally working overtime for free to try to just get caught up. They don't have the the the, the, the right resources. They don't have the funding. They don't have the buildings. Heck, here in Bakersfield, the, the, the VA outpatient hospital that's here in Bakersfield is such a crap hole that the people that, you know, I literally feel that when I walk in there, I'm going to catch something coming out. You know, it's just that bad of a building. And so essentially, I mean, if we can spend all this money on all of our allies and all these other people around the world, why can't we put American and veterans first? Why can't we get the VA the resources they need? The VA system should have been built, rebuilt 50, 40, you know, 40 years ago after the Vietnam War. But nobody thought we were going to get into another war. Oh, we're not going to get in another war after Vietnam. Nothing's going to happen. Well, here we are, you know, and we still are, have the same VA that was established, you know, 40, 50 years ago that hasn't been essentially revamped or given the resources it needs to essentially um, take care of, of the people that we're putting in harm's way. So Jeremy, the biggest thing is getting in the resources. You were quoted once as saying um, about – you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you can't just tell some Marine who just lost his buddy that we supported you, but not the war, because in that case, you're basically saying that Marine, his buddy just died for nothing. We're one team to that end. After all these years later, nearly two decades in Afghanistan, you know, 15 plus years in Iraq, where do you stand on where we are with these wars? And, and, and this isn't necessarily a political question. I'm just asking you personally, not as Jeremy Stott's running for Congress, as Jeremy Stott, the guy who put a uniform on. How do you see these wars and where they are? You know, the biggest thing I, I see is that there's still political wars. You know, I wish, I wish that these politicians, when they declare war on somebody, that they would let us fight the way we were trained. If they would let us fight the way we were trained, we would not have any enemies. I mean, literally, when Iran wanted to play, wanted a piece of this a couple of weeks ago, I literally said, you know, it'd take less than a weekend if they turn loose the dogs and let us fight the way we were trained. We wouldn't have to put boots on the ground in Iran and we could decimate their infrastructure in a weekend. You know, but the problem is, is that you have individuals that are in Congress who feel you've know, never served, who don't understand that. You know, they've stayed in their little their little bubble, if you will, who's never served, but they love their little cush seat and they feel like they have that power. But at the end of the day, when I look back, you know, I just think, yeah, thanks for supporting me. I believed in the war at the time, but now I look back and I go, you know what? I don't know. I don't think it was worth it. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's funny. I don't know where I sit. I, I, 
Well, you're torn. I'm torn. You know, it's like, man, I believed. I believed in everything that Mr. Bush said. I believed in what he said. And then when it came out, you know, everything, once again, I hate to bring him up, but everything that happened with Pat, you know, how they lied and deceived his family. And then I go, that hurt all of us, man. I mean, that that hurt all of us. And I'm not even comparing it to the hurt and pain that the Tillman family felt because that's at the top of the list. But just as people put on a uniform, that hurt all of us. None of us came out on top for that. Nobody did. Um, And so to that end, you know, it's hard because diplomacy and politicking and long-term strategy and goals, it's hard to get them all on the same page and solve them all with one swoop of the pen or, you know, one decision that, that is made by somebody in Washington. You know, I mean, I, I know this for a fact. I mean, I was in Iraq in both 2005, 2006, and then again at the closeout in 2011. And I could tell that we hit whole velocity in Iraq in about 2009. That was the best it was ever going to get. It was never going to get any yeah. better than that. And we stayed for two more years, and things slowly started deteriorating. As you said, you go back there now, it's probably as bad as it was prior to the invasion. It's just, a, it's just hot garbage. I mean, you know, it was a war we could never win. It was a cause we could never win. But that, that doesn't for one second make me feel like anything I did was unjust or anything I did didn't serve a purpose. And furthermore, it doesn't make me believe that the impacts we made there weren't good. Now, in the, in the macro, the 30,000-foot view it ends up being sort of a loss, right? You look at it in the big picture and you say, right back where we started, we didn't get anywhere. All we did was waste time, money, lives, and resources, and that's a loss. But not everything is at a 30,000-foot view, especially if the people put on a uniform. We don't see the 30,000-foot view. We see the 10-meter view right in front of us. And to that end, the way you conduct yourself in combat, the way you conduct yourself as a person who wears the uniform to your fellow soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors, whatever it may be, that is the measure of how you win because you can only control the battles that you fight in nothing else. Oh, absolutely. And especially at the time when you're there, Uh, you know, things can, you know, it's easy to say, well, we should have, could have, should have done this or that. You know, back in what was it, 2009, 2010, I thought, man, we're really making progress here. I mean, they've got carnivals. They've got, you know, they're having these, uh, what the hell they call those big wheels that spin, whatever the hell they're called, the Ferris wheels. I'm thinking, wow, you know, they're having their their theme parks open. Wow, this is like we're making a change. And like you said, about 2011, we start going, man, more, more, more strikes, more suicide bombing, all that. And we're going, Okay. Well, obviously that, uh, you know, what we've tried to do there isn't going to hold because of essentially it comes down to the ideology of what they believe. And it's like, once again, like you, you know, what was it worth? You know, was it worth all that? I believe it was at that point in time. Yes. But now looking back, I don't know. I mean, it's like things have changed. People have evolved. I think their society has kind of gone backwards. Our society has kind of gone stagnant, if you will, uh, as far as just being so what's the word I'm looking for? Just being so desensitized to war. I mean, soldiers, Marines, airmen, they're dying weekly over there and it doesn't even make the news anymore. Yeah. Mass shootings here in in America don't even make the news anymore. You you know, it's funny. It's funny that you say it doesn't make the news anymore. Um, And this just happened as we sit here recording this, this was uh, in the last 24, 48 hours. Um, where it was a, a 18-year-old kid was killed in Afghanistan. Um, and the way it was written um, was that by uh, the city, this kid was obviously from Aurora, Illinois, but the Twitter account of Aurora, Illinois wrote this, and I'm quoting it directly. Tonight, Aurora community mourns the heartbreaking loss of Miguel Villalone, 21. He was one of two U.S. service members who passed away today while serving in Afghanistan. 
passed away? Uh-huh. What a bunch of bullshit. Excuse my French. Like, he yeah. was killed in combat. This mm-hmm. is where we are, that we are now changing killed in combat to passed away while serving, as if it was somebody who, in the ripe old age of 21, was on his deathbed after serving hundreds of years in the military, and it silently mm-hmm. expired. Quite, yep. I mean, he was killed in combat. Like, this well, is where ta- we are. It's a taboo subject that people don't want to talk about anymore. It's the same thing with suicide. You know, most people didn't realize that, you know, when it says passed away suddenly in the obituary, that usually means 99% of the time it means they committed suicide, but nobody wants to talk about it. You know, and that's one of the thing, one of the reasons I rode the bicycle across the country is to bring awareness to this. And it's the same thing now. We want to, you know, we want to make sure that everything is sugar-coated so it doesn't, you know, bring out the reality of what it is. I mean, that kid gave his life on the combat field, but let's just talk about, like you said, let's just make it real, you know, real pretty and nice and unoffensive because, you know, we don't want somebody out there to say, you know, and this has happened. You see it, you know, oh, well, he deserved to die because he's fighting an illegal war. What an idiot. You know, I've seen posts like that before. I've even been told people have said that to me. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding me right now? Like, I don't control the wars. I'm just a guy answering the call to serve. It's a, it's a strange spot that we're in, to say the least. And, and that's part of the reason why wholeheartedly I agree with you. We need more veterans in leadership positions in this country, especially as, you know, militarism has become such an everyday fabric of our lives where we, again, uh, we, we have made it so easy to say that a soldier passed away instead of being killed in combat because, you know, the impact isn't there anymore. And, and to that end, you know, the leaders who are, who are going to take this country the next step forward uh, need to have the experience of leadership. And, and as I said earlier, I think that to me more than anything uh, is what stands out. It's what I'd run on, whether you have said it or not. It's what you're running on because you already are a leader in that aspect. And I think that uh, hopefully that shines through to everybody who goes to the polls. I absolutely hope so as well. You know, like I said, as much as it, you know, it pisses me off that I have to continue to prove myself every day to these non-combat you know, politicians and these individuals who have never served, you know, it's very frustrating to me, you know, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. So at the end of the day, you know, you would want a non combat, you know, a civilian in a, in a, in a political seat over a veteran in times of war. You know, it just, it, it, it just, it, it, my, my mind is just boggled by the way our, where our society is at today. Whereas, like I said, the individuals I'm running against over in the eighth congressional district right now, I'm the only veteran. I'm the only veteran that's running out of nine people. And at the end of the day, if I don't get my name recognition in the district up, you know what? I'm probably not going to be the guy that they're going to vote for. And that's a very unfortunate. And it's, of course, one of those things. Do I continue to want to fight and put my family and expose my family to this thing again? Or do I just sit back and live my comfortable little life and just go fishing with my boys, you know, and never talk about politics again? But it's just it's very frustrating for me to see that, you know, even as a veteran in this country today, on the political scale, it really doesn't hold that much weight anymore. And that's what's sad. Well, Jeremy, it certainly has been an amazing story. I mean, from elite college football player to the NFL, uh, to Marine Corps, to Iraq, and now uh, hopefully to a seat in Congress one day. I mean, uh, I don't know that we've had any guests as unique as your story on this podcast, but I've certainly enjoyed talking to you and certainly wish you nothing but the best going forward. But uh, you know, hold hold strong to those values uh, that that you've learned throughout your career and that you've learned throughout the Marine Corps, and, and the rest should take care of itself. 
Absolutely. God's will be done. And man, I appreciate the time. God bless. Supper Fidelis. Jeremy Stott, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.